Jeez, here we go. So we are, we have made it into uh, chapter three of Philippians. Woohoo! And uh, we'll uh, today we will we'll build uh, as I've said previously we'll we'll build the porch today, and we'll start creating a, a, the foundation for the house. But uh, we won't get all, uh, very far. We'll get as far as we can. Um, <clears throat> no, we certainly won't finish because this is our last for the year. Yeah, this is our last for the year. The next, is the next one like January? January 7th. 7th. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we've got a, we've got a, next week, we're, uh, for those of you who have, have responded to Joe, uh, we're meeting over at Joe Mastro's. Uh, we'll have a, a nice uh, Christmas uh, breakfast and we'll have a, an opportunity to hear a couple of guest speakers. And, uh, and then we'll, from there we'll uh, have a couple of weeks break as everything goes nuts here at, uh, at Kensington as they're getting ready to do their Christmas uh, Eve programs. And um, so we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll, we'll do this. We're going to read the entire chapter because I want to get a, a set up for where we're headed and, and kind of explain at least uh, the overall view of chapter 3. And then we'll, uh, we'll start breaking down the first uh, few verses of chapter 3. So... Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we do that. Let me just say that uh, Denny's table, uh, Keith's table, Gary's table, Tom's table, and our table will read in that order, and we'll read all 21 verses of chapter 3 of Philippians, okay? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and thank you for the way, again, that your word uh, encourages us and challenges us. And um, we just pray today, Father, that the Spirit would speak to us and where we need to be spoken to, and we'd, we would understand what you have for us today. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct in our lives. We thank you for this uh, season of Advent when uh, we are participating and thinking about and, uh, and longing for, uh, not only for the celebration of your, of your son's birth, but but beyond that the fact that we long for him to return and uh, as we look for the towards the future we pray that you will the future will affect us as to how we live today realizing that christ could come back at any time may he find us in service and being faithful to you we ask this in jesus name amen, amen. all right let's get started
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgiving, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, in any life as enemies of the cause of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is Okay, so in this beginning, we have uh, kind of, th in this chapter, we have three things going on. We have uh, Paul, past, Paul's uh, present, and Paul's, but you can figure this out, future. And uh, within that, you see that uh, he views it in three different ways. One, he is an accountant. The second one, he is uh, an athlete. This is going to be ch challenging. I don't know how to spell athlete. And the last one is uh, an alien. <laughs> And uh, you, you can see that uh, he, uh, he says in, this, in the first 11 verses, I count, uh, which is, um, uh, he counts on uh, new values. He has new values. And uh, in, uh, in the second 
he says, uh, I, I press on, and in this case it has um, uh, a new uh, vigor. And the last one, he says, uh, I, uh, I look. I'm looking for, towards the future, and so he has a, a, new, uh, a new future, a new vision, excuse me, is the way I put it. So we have this, this three sets uh, in this chapter is going to be broken down into, and what we're going to do is we're going to find that today, we're going to, we'll, I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll try to get the first 11 verses. I doubt that's going to happen, but let's assume it does. And when we come back, we'll look at verses 12 through 16 and then 17 through 21. It'll probably take us at least three weeks uh, all total. So after the first of the year, when we're back together, we will... Uh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate that little chuckle there. I, if I was Giuseppe, I'd tell you that I hate you. <laughs> all right. Yeah, just on the inside. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's where we're headed. Now the question then becomes this, as we look at this beginning part, is uh, who is Paul referring to in these first couple of verses when he says, uh, uh, watch out for those dogs. He says, you know, I want, I want you to rejoice. Remember, joy is the, is the main, uh, one of the main themes here in Philippians. So he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, and there's no trouble for me to write you the same things again, and it is a safeguard for you. So watch out for dogs, for those men who are, do evil, and mutilators of the flesh. Who's he talking about here? Judaizers. Pharisees, Judaizers. Okay, is it the same as the first portion of the of chapter one? It, and that's one of the questions that, that scholars wrestle with. We don't know for sure. Is it the first group that he's talking about, or is it another group? So is it the same persons he's addressing in chapter one? And then is it the same person that he addresses throughout chapter 3? In other words, does he change halfway through? Is it, if it, is it different people? Is he talking about different people, different sets of people here? Now, we think that it probably has to do with people who are Judaizers. Now, who are the Judaizers? Okay. So are they, are they believers? Yeah. Yeah. But they thought he was first, you had to be a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently they still ruled out the Gentiles. Uh, well, you were, um, what they wanted a Gentile to do is they wanted to become a Jew. And then then follow Christ. Remember, what was, what, do you remember what the, the name of, of uh, the sect of, uh, of the Nazarene uh, was called early on in Christianity? Remember? Right in the very beginning of Acts, it was called this way. The way, the followers of the way. So the way, why, why was that? What, what did Jesus say he was? The way, the truth, and the life. So followers of the way. And, and they were Jewish. The, the, original, the original group. Were they Jewish? Right. And, and so who did, who, Paul wrote this earlier in other, in other passages, in other, in other books, in other epistles, did who did he come, and in Acts we talk about this as well. Uh, remember, who was supposed to, to hear the gospel first? The Jews. the Jews. 
Who heard it second? Gentiles. Okay, but uh, in practice, you should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Samaria. So Samaria kind of came in second in the sense that they were half-breeds, right? They were both Jews and Gentiles. They had mixed together hundreds of years earlier. They had kind of their own their their own Bible. It was the Old Testament that they had translated into making it comfortable for them and it fit their pattern of life. Does that remind you of any other groups today where we have our own, you know, we have people that, that retranslate Scripture so that it fits their particular understanding? Anything outside of King James? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, for those... I, I was I was thinking more along the lines of uh, of um, Jehovah's Witnesses, where they retranslate Scripture to fit their own understanding. Um, yeah, but but yeah, there are there are those that are that are King James only, and uh, God bless you if you are one of them. That's great, not a problem. Uh, you'll notice that that I am I am not, um, but it's all right. Because remember, if, with, with the King James, if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. So um, now, now that I've lost all the people that actually listen to this podcast, that uh, was a joke. That was, that was a joke. <laughs> King James, King James the first of England, was uh, actually the first Scottish king that became king of England. He was James the fifth or sixth. I forget what the, anybody remember? Nobody remember? Okay, I'll just make it up. I think it was the fifth <laughs> or the sixth. <laughs> and um, he became the first king of England as a Scottish king. Now, uh, there was a Bible that had been translated. It was called the Geneva Bible that was translated prior to uh, James taking the throne. And it was a good translation. It was an excellent translation. In fact, if you ever have a chance to look at it, You'll see that the Bible is it actually it reminds you of a study Bible. It has notes and and columns uh, for additional information. It's really kind of cool to see. I think if I remember correctly, I have one. I have a uh, facsimile of one sitting on my shelf in my library. Was it um, was it translated from the Latin or from the Greek? Yes. Both. Pretty much. I mean, you know that. What you have is uh, they tried to do the best possible translation they could of of the uh, original languages. The problem you run into is the Textus Receptus, which is the main text that they had that they used for translations at that time. Um, Erasmus, I think, put it together, if I remember correctly. My history is a little fuzzy. But Erasmus puts it together. Um, he tries to put together an entire translation at that point in time for whatever reason they didn't have all of the Greek there so occasionally when they created the Textus Receptus what they did is if they couldn't get it in Greek they would take the Latin and they would retranslate <laughs> it into Greek so they had a Greek text okay so uh, but eventually we were able to find there are hundreds and hundreds of copies of full copies of, of Greek texts that come from Primarily, the majority of the, of the texts are what we call the Textus Receptus. They come from the, uh, the, the Church of uh, uh, the, the uh, Orthodox, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, because most of those uh, Bibles were found in Greek Orthodox churches. They were, they were pulpit Bibles, big, huge Bibles that were left on a, 
basically the community, like today's often some churches have communion tables and they have the big Bible on the community. That was kind of what they had. They had a Bible that was kind of chained to the table. And during the, the Renaissance and during the, uh, um, the uh, uh, Crusades, uh, you know, one of the last Crusades, the, the uh, Western uh, Knights uh, sacked Constantinople what would be and stole a lot of stuff back and brought it back to, the, to, uh, to Rome and, and to the Western uh, portion of that. So anyhow, King James is, uh, to get out, we're way off base, but King James is, the, is, uh, is uh, <laughs> it could be, uh, is upset with the fact that the, the Geneva Bible does not um, promote the divine right of kings. And it's very important that he is seen as the king of England, not just, not just uh, Scotland. So the result is he wants to make sure that, that there's a new translation out that he, is, that he authorizes, he approves of. And that's why you have the authorized version. It's not authorized by God. It's authorized by King James, who wants to have his way and make sure that everyone understands that he's the boss. So that's how we got the, the King James translation. And it came from what we call the Textus Receptus, which was primarily all, uh, the New Testament was all primarily Greek from the Greek Orthodox churches. Uh, and uh, since then they found, and, and we've told you this before, there are multiple, there are three, uh, three branches of, of translations that the New Testament comes from. And one... One branch is the Textus Receptus. One is a, a, a Egyptian uh, translation. It comes from the Alexandria area, or perhaps even the, uh, the Sinai, because uh, it's called the Sinaiticus. Uh, is one of the translate one of the, the translations, or one of the original? I say original. One of the earliest uh, collections of scripture is is there, and there's another one, and I can't remember, but it might be from, it might be. Titled from Rome or something, but anyhow, there's a third. There are three branches. The, the the vast majority of the of what we have in the New Testament comes from the Greek Orthodox Church. It is not the oldest that we have. The oldest are some of the other the, the other two translations. So um, they have they're older. They're um, and usually as when you do studies of trying to figure out what to believe and what what's correct you look at the oldest you also look at the one that is that has the shortest number of words less words earlier translation more words more newer translations it's just kind of the way it works um you'll notice that uh, i think rick when he was reading he talked about you know brothers and he also added the word sisters you know well that's not in the original the original says brothers uh, we've added that word to make it understandable that it include its inclusion of both male and female uh, in, in order to have a better translation for the translation that Rick is using. It was, by the way, Rick, it was in uh, NIV. It was the new NIV versus the older NIV. All right, so <clears throat> he's going to look. It's the large print. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so now that we've spent a lot of time on King James, um, <clears throat> so... We have to understand that, that, that we're dealing with people who are uh, either uh, Jewish uh, Judaizers, or it could also be that it's an early form of Jewish slash Gnostic 
uh, believers as well. Uh, that's an also a possibility. Whether we don't know for sure, and, and because Gnosticism was around long before there was uh, before Christianity, long it, it dates back almost to the time of, of uh, the Jewish uh, understanding. Remember what Gnosticism is? I'm sorry. Right, yeah. And it comes from, it comes from as a form of dualism as well, which means that there's, a, there's an absolute evil and an absolute good. And um, when we get to the, way back in the, in, the ap, in the application of this, which I don't know when we'll get there, but when we get there, we'll talk a little bit about some of that that is pro, pre, was prevalent in the church early on and and sometimes is today. We, we have a tendency today to have a form of dualism sometimes in our church if we're not real careful in churches. We, uh, we try to, uh, sometimes we try to give Satan more power than he actually has. We, we, and, and we think that, that there is a, an absolute evil and an absolute good. And they're, they're probably, you know, to some degree there is, but he's not all powerful, the evil one. He's not, he's not God, okay? All right, so uh, so we have these two possible groups that are an advocate of, of scholars on both sides of that equation. We've talked to you a little bit about the fact that uh, uh, that what the Jews were attempting to do was synchronistic. Remember what synchronistic is? Anybody want to take a stab at it? It's in sync. It's in sync, yeah. It's, it's the combination of two things, and, and, and it blends them together. And it, it's, uh, it, it was an, an area that the Jews, uh, those, that were, those that were believers that were Jewish that wanted you to stay true to Judaism would add to Scripture and try to make it better. Isn't that interesting how we try to make it? There, there, are, there are groups today that, that, that fight over second and secondary and tertiary uh, important facts of Scripture, you know, and, and so they want to add that to Scripture, and that's what that's what's going on here. Is the, the the Jews say? Notice it says that they're called a watch out for these dogs. Who's he, he's referring to? To, to Jews. Do, do you remember what 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 did the Jews think of the Gentiles? What did they think of the Samaritans? They were dogs. He's turning the tables on them, and he's calling them dogs. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's a pretty strong, uh, you know, uh, word to say to a Jew. You're a dog. That, that's that's not a good point. And then he goes on to say, a few years before that, he was on the other side. Yeah, isn't that interesting? He's talking about the fact that he he's more. He, and he, we get into that, we get in verse, verses uh, 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 in, in this first section here where he talks about he compares his righteousness. Now, we've got two sorts of righteousness going on in here. Remember, what is righteousness? Remember, what's a, what's a good definition for righteousness? Right standing. Right standing. Godliness. Godliness. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is a, a sense to which we want to be righteous, right? We want to, and righteousness is a, a spiritual wealth, if you will. 
It's what God gives us. He gives us his righteousness. But there are two ways of, of attempting to ab- approach that. Those that, uh, are, that are Judaizers, and again, I'm not, I don't want to necessarily attack Judaizers to the sense that we, it's easy for us to understand that they are wrong. It's hard for us sometimes to realize that they're believers. Yeah. So isn't it two different groups he's talking to then in one and three? Because three seems like he's talking to the Jews, whereas one is is people that have seem to have accepted Christ but they're have bad motives and Yeah. Yeah, that that would be my take on it personally. But there are those that, that you know, there are there are scholars that say no, it's all the same. And I, I tend to think it's two different groups. But again, you know, my opinion and two dollars and forty nine cents gets you a cup of coffee at Panera. That's just how important my opinion is. All right. Is, is um, it two sixty nine? Sorry, okay. It's now two sixty nine. So inflation. Today's, uh, today's messianic Jews, would they be uh, you want you want to take a stab at that? I, I have a I have an answer, but oh, go ahead. Uh, all right. So I think that that today's Messianic Jews, there's a sense to which, um, if you're a Jewish person, and you've been raised with uh, the Old Testament and and the Old Testament ways, uh, I don't think that you necessarily have to give up your your Jewishness in order to come to Christ what I what I'm what I'm concerned about with is that often the over well I don't know over but here in America probably close to 50 percent of the people that go to Messianic Jewish uh, synagogues uh, are not Jewish to begin with they're just fascinated with with Judaism and they like the and, and there is a sense to which I I kind of like that a little bit myself. I've been to, to, to Messianic Jewish services, and, and there is kind of, it's kind of neat some of the things that they, they offer and some of the perspective that, that comes to, to mind. But I'm not sure that it really, you know, if you're a Jew and you want, you want to continue that way, I think God bless you. I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, I know there are those that, that do. There, there are groups that are out there trying to win Jews to Jesus and they, when they do, they tell them they have to give up all their Jewishness, and I'm not sure that that's fair. You know. Of course, I guess there's a difference between <clears throat> wanting to hang on to some of the beliefs of Judaism and then thinking versus thinking it's a requirement. Yes. To be in. And I think as you you have a new understanding of what that means to you as a Christian, I think that's awesome to have that that kind of depth of background so that you understand some of the things in the Old Testament and being able to apply it to, you know, your understanding of what Jesus was talking about. I think that's great. And I've tried to, to give you that occasionally when we've studied some of the Gospels and we've studied like Acts and we studied Hebrews uh, because I wanted you to, to get a sense of, of uh, how that all plays together and how it all fits together in this grand scheme that, that God designed. Uh, he's not done with the Jews. Yeah. Christianity. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and the, the one thing that, uh, uh, that really impressed me is that every time you come to 
it's it's kind of like you know we think of things in terms of linear time, but we actually enjoying the moment in time of the clocks, mm-hmm. and that's perpetual. So every time we, we go and, and celebrate, we're there, we're right there at the foot of the cross. And there's, there's so much that's unseen because of our human mistake that there's all this stuff that's going on that we can't see, but it's all happening right there and now. It is, a, it is an interesting uh, aspect to uh, the whole area of Passover and how it relates to uh, to our celebration of not only Christ's death, but also uh, our Last Supper. Uh, and in addition to that would be a, uh, an understanding of uh, a blending of Yom Kippur as well, where we have the Day of Atonement and how Christ uh, is portrayed in that and comes through in that as well. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating study, and, and it's one that is well worth your time to... Yes. They all point somehow, some way. And I've actually, did I hand it out here one time? I think someone says yes. I handed out a a flyer, or I mean, I created a a chart that has all that uh, played out uh, in an explanation. It's been a while since I've done that. The only two that have added are Purim and Hanukkah. Those two are. Festivals that are added to their thing that they. Right. And those, those two actually have some uh, historical relevance to the New Testament. Uh, Purim is, uh, is the celebration of uh, the Jews being allowed uh, to defend themselves. Uh, remember uh, Esther and the law that the, the Persian Empire, Emperor made, and he said he can't change the, the law, which was that you could basically attack the Jews. And, but he allowed them to protect themselves. So Purim, and, and remember Haman, Haman gets hung because of, okay, so Purim is a celebration of that event. And then Hanukkah is a celebration of lights, lights which comes from? When, when the temple was sacked, that the eternal light still stayed eternal. There was still enough uh, oil that had been, uh, had been uh, blessed by the high priest so that they could light the, and it, was, it wasn't supposed to last, but it lasted, it was enough for maybe a day, it lasted for seven days, and, and it, it happened during the time of the mass. mass. The, in between the, the Maccabees, there you go. Uh, during probably right around maybe 200, BC, right around that time frame, is during the time frame of uh, right after uh, Alexander the Great, when when his generals break up the uh, the the uh, Greco Empire into five different areas, and it was Antiochus Epiphanes who did that. He was also called Antiochus the Pig, which Epiphany and Pig was a play on words. But uh, he's the one that went in and, and, uh, and uh, sacked the temple, uh, offered a pig on the altar, uh, desecrated the temple, the, which caused the revolt, which caused the uh, Maccabees to rise. And, 
and to, to take back the kingdom and make a kingdom of high priests who are also kings for a time, for several hundreds of years. All right, so now that you've learned all about this history of... I'm taking Fourth of July now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry, guys. I, I, you know, I do rabbit trail. I know that. But you ask me questions. I can't help it. I have this tendency to want to answer questions. Um, so the uh, what you notice in, in one of the keywords in chapter eleven, uh, chapter three, verses one through eleven is count. It happens in 7 and 8. It also happens in 13, which is beyond chapter 11, uh, verse 11. But it has, there, are two, there are two Greek words here that are basically the same idea. It's the idea to evaluate or to assess. And so we have here, uh, you know, he counts it all gain. He, it's the, exam, the examination of life that's important. Socrates said, supposedly said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, some of us, you know, like myself, sometimes included, we don't like examining our lives. It's uncomfortable to examine my life, you know, because then I have to realize how messed up I made it. So that's one of the things there. And so there are a few people who sit down and seriously uh, weigh the values uh, that control their decisions and their directions. But if you do, often sometimes we do that first of the year, right, when we make we make, you know, resolutions, you know, we take a look at our lives. Okay, this year I want to do this. And that lasts for maybe a month if we're lucky. That's right. And, and you know, I, yeah, absolutely. Until the bagels and or the, uh, the donuts, you know. So there's that. And so there are people that are slaves to things. And the result of being a slave to things is that you lose your joy. Because you're never satisfied. Things don't. Anything you get ends up getting old. It ends up being used up. You get a new car. It's really great. It has a new car smell. You know, well, what happens in a few years? It starts smelling like old French fries, you know? And, and it starts to wear out. And if our joy is based upon things that we accumulate, we're going to be really disappointed. And we're not going to be happy in life. So that's one of the issues that, that Paul is dealing with here. And the other one is that we talk about religious people. And, you know, we talk about religious people who think that that's how you get to heaven. Well, Paul says you want to compare your religi religiosity to mine? You want to compare your morality to mine? I'll, share, I'll put mine up against yours any day of the week, and I'll win. And, and yet what he realized is that he had to lose his religion in order to find salvation. He had to give up his understanding of what he was. I think, what, I think it kind of shows to me that he had all this learning and actually by that, God took that to reveal Christ in him. That's oh, yeah. You know That's why he went. That's why That's he went. Yeah, yeah. But you got a guy who's a who's a trained theologian in in, in Jewish you know Jewish theology, and then spends three years what we say is three years in what is nominally considered the um, Arabia, which could probably be the other side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, in what is uh, an area would be now considered Jordan, 
that he's there for three years relearning and rethinking his theology. Wow, you know, and then he writes, you know, I can't even imagine the kind of ability that he has to write what he does here in in, in Philippians and Colossians and, and all the rest. I mean, Romans, oh my goodness. You know, so, all right. That passage here, does it, does it seem like he's directing that writing to um, the converted Jews who would know what he was talking about, saying, you know, he was a Benjamite and a Pharisee and the importance of the circumcision and all that good stuff? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, you know, the, the, one of the issues you have in, in asking that question, because that's, that's, that's exactly what scholars are, are arguing over in this passage. One of the things they argue over is, was he talking specifically to, to Jews? And well, the question then is, how many Jews were there in Philippi? Well, the, the answer is there weren't enough to have a synagogue in the beginning. You know, so they had to, and it was primarily a Roman colony town. It had been given the, the same rights as those who were citizens of Rome. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you had all the same rights as, as a Roman citizen. So uh, it's possible that these Jewish uh, believers who came and said, hey, you, you, Paul got it kind of right. Yeah, you're supposed to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but as Messiah, there's a few more things you have to do. And, and so he's putting himself up. If, if they were talking, if these, I, I think part of what he's doing is he's saying, okay, all of these people that have followed after me, that have come and that are teachers, that are attempting to tell you what, to, what you should do, if you want to look at their credentials, look at mine. And if theirs are good, mine are great. So you better listen, you know, listen to me. I, I know more what I'm talking about than they do. I think that's part of it. So, the, I mean, people who were, say, Gentiles who were now in the way, there hadn't been time to develop all the religiosity in the Christian way yeah. that he would be referring to. It seems like the only thing he's really talking to well, think is of, the think old about, Jewish tradition. Well, think about this. You had Jews that, you know, Jewish believers that come in and they start teaching that you've got to add to your salvation. And one of the things you got to do is you got to get circumcised, you know, which is uh, a little uncomfortable, especially as you get older in life. As an adult, it's not the most comfortable, you know. And that's one of those times where you definitely want. Yes, it would be. Yes, and it's one of those things where you definitely want to measure twice and only cut once if you can, you know. So, uh, so there is there is a sense to which this, and we get to this evil, the evil that they're doing, and in addition to that, con, the circumcision. In fact. The word that he uses here for circumcision is crazy. It's literally what, the, what it, it literally means uh, to mutilate. And it's one of the words that's sometimes translated um, as, uh, excuse me, as circumcision. But it's, it's really bad. It's ta- it, 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 out of, uh, uh, it, it, and this idea of teaching starts in Acts 15, verse 1. Men came from Judea to Antioch. That's where Paul was based at, right? It's a kind of a Roman, it's a, a Gentile city. And they, they're teaching the brothers and saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And in Galatians, Paul deals with it again. He's got, remember, Galatians talks about this. And he says in Galatians 6, verses 12 and following, he says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to become circumcised. 
The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why? Because by this time it's starting to be less considered less Jewish and more a separate religion. And as such, it doesn't fall under the protection of Judaism. Judaism was an approved religion in the Roman Empire. You couldn't be persecuted if you were a Jew. Unless you were a Jew that was following a false god in a false way. So he goes on to say that uh, n not even those uh, who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to become circumcised that they can boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. So says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all those who follow this rule, even, the Israel, even Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with, you, uh, with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So Paul states that circumcision itself is kind of considered mutilation. Uh, I'm trying to find the passage. I wrote it down here somewhere in my notes, and of course I can't find it. Isn't that special? Um, where it, there, There's two places in the Old Testament where it talks about circumcision, and they use the same, when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint, they use the same term in those two passages to refer to mutilation. So the idea is that uh, you have to be circumcised and you have to know, you have to add good works. You have to do something to get saved. It isn't enough just to believe in Christ's finished work. So um, yeah, Christians... He has a whole paragraph in either chapter one or two about um, you can't rely on our works or human effort. Yeah. It's, that's not going to do it. It's only through the power of Christ. Yeah. So he keeps returning in this book uh, the idea where he talks elsewhere in his writings about rejecting the old covenant. It's the new covenant is the only thing that matters. And remember, Jesus said he came to fulfill the old covenant. He came to fulfill the law. He fulfills the law, but he fulfills it in a way that is not understood by the teachers of his time. They misunderstood. So these evil workers... Uh, are ones who are wanting to add good works to, uh, especially the works of the law, to their salvation. And so the, Paul basically is saying that their good works that they're actually wanting you to do ultimately are evil works because they're performed by the flesh, the old nature, not the spirit. And they glorify the workers because now we can start counting noses, or in this case, circumcisions, you know. I had, it, it, isn't it interesting how sometimes we, churches today want to count noses and nickels? How many people are in the pews and how much are they giving? That's really important, right? Isn't that what God said? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you count noses and nickels, right? I don't know if you that But remember, what does it say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10? For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God to make sure that no one boasts, right? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us. Did God expect us to do good works? Yes. Does, do good works get us saved? No. What do good works do? They show 
horizontally that we are believers. When you brought in, not to, not to beat up anybody, because this time I actually did remember to bring stuff, but when you bring underwear and socks for the, for, for the Hope Warming Center, you're showing your good works. You're, you're, you're doing the horizontal portion of the gospel. You're helping those that are in need. That's, that's important. But that doesn't get you saved. That works in God. That's why everything we do is Christ in us. That's right. That's the way we have to look at it. Yeah. And uh, anything bad I do is the flesh in me. Yeah. We're going to talk about that if we get a few minutes here. Well, let's, let's, we're going to probably get through verses three or four here if we're lucky. So this idea of, of uh, we've talked a little bit about persecution or about mutilation, about Christianity. What's the most important? Here, here are some things that we get caught up, caught up on. If you're a Judaizer, you get caught up in circumcision. If you're not a Judaizer, what are some of the other things we get caught up on? And we say, this is, you have to do it this way or you're not good. You have human effort. human effort. So things like, but, but as, as a believer, as, as Christians, what we, we start emphasizing baptism, the way you're baptized. Do you, do you get baptized as an infant? Do you get baptized as an adult? Do you get sprinkled? Do you get poured? Do you get put under, dunked? If you're dunked, do you get dunked backwards? Because that's the way we do it here in this church. And by the way, I had a friend of mine one time was baptizing, he got kind of confused in the baptistry. It was long, and he baptized for the, the short way, smacked the lady's head right, in the, right against the wall as she's going down. <laughs> it, was, it was a funny experience for me, not so funny for the lady, and really embarrassing for my friend. So, but, but if you're, there are certain parts of, of, of our Protestant world that say you, you don't baptize backwards, you baptize forwards. In fact, I don't know if they do this in, in, in your Catholic church, uh, Rick, but uh, I know of at least one Catholic church down in, uh, in um, uh, Texas that they baptize face forward uh, for adults. They do adult baptism. They have a baptismal fount down there, and they baptize them face forward. So, But if you're a, a, one of the Protestant groups, they baptize three times in the name of the Father, dunk, in the name of the Son, dunk, in the name of the Holy Spirit, dunk. Three times. We do it once, which is right. I don't know. What about how we do communion? I don't know. God says we're supposed to do it as to how we're supposed to do it, as to what all the significance of it is. Boy, there's all kinds of perspectives. We get to heaven, we'll figure out which one's right. I happen to think mine's right, but you happen to think yours is right. It's okay. We're still brothers in Christ. What about tithing? Should we tithe? Or are we supposed to give an offering? How much should we give? Is a tithe enough? Well, I don't know. In the Old Testament, they tithe like two tithes. Actually, it's two and a third tithe. Because every third year, they give a third tithe. Really? Is that how much? If that's the case, some of you are way behind. I'm just saying. We'll be collecting as we leave. Uh, no. <laughs> Hey, try to catch up. Yeah. So are there are other religious practices that we, we, we add to. Are those things important for our salvation? It's important that we practice some of those. But how we end up practicing, will it, will it keep us from heaven if we don't do it the right way? No. What, what's, what's required for us to become a part of the body of Christ? Faith in Jesus. Belief. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's what true. So, so this. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't it? Uh, do you know how many people we talk to that, that say, oh, it can't be that easy? That's just too easy. There must be a better way. A better way? Really? <laughs> Seriously? I've heard people say that. Oh, there's got to be a better way than that. Well, I think I've told you before that a Muslim friend of mine from uh, when I was working, that was his reaction. And I tried to explain grace to him. He said, nah, it's too easy. That can't be right. So. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a problem. You know, when I was a legalist, it was so much easier to live, you know, in, in, as a good Christian. It really became a problem when I started this, this whole idea of living by grace. Doggone it. That's just not right, God. I, why'd you have to mess up a perfectly good religion? You know. What is this having confidence in the flesh? Confidence in the flesh. God says that the flesh is corrupt. What does it mean? What does it mean by flesh? Just human effort, right? Yeah, human effort. Okay, so. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we talk about you know the the whole idea of uh, uh, you know the Lord helps those who help themselves. Is that is that a biblical verse? <laughs> Pretty sure that's in Hezekiah, right? <laughs> Book of Hezekiah, maybe it's the book of the two eyed kings. This is one of my other favorite books. Okay, all right. So we talk about this flesh thing, is really kind of, you know, flesh is corrupted God's way on earth. Genesis 6 says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Hmm. So the flesh is corrupt? John 6, 63 says, The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Romans seven eighteen says, I know nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. One day, uh, there's a story that says there was a lady who was talking to her pastor. She was talking about this matter of faith and works. And she said, I think the way to get to heaven is like a rowboat. One or is faith and the other or is works. And if you don't have, if you don't have both, you're going to go around in a circle. And uh, the, the pastor said, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody gets to heaven in a rowboat. <laughs> so it, it, it isn't... Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith is based upon a vertical relationship with God. How that plays out in this world is the horizontal aspect of it. And, and for too long, there have been those who have emphasized one over the other. And, and I fell into that camp. I, I was all about the vertical relationship, and suddenly it dawned on me that the vertical relationship should drive the way that my horizontal relationship. And when I came to that knowledge, I go, oops. I've been spending all my time with this and no time this way. That's bad. That's wrong. It's not what God calls us to do. So I had to ch kind of change the way I did things, the way I believed things, the way I practiced things. Again, God always is messing up you know, my, my perfect little life that I have all for myself, right? You ever notice that? Or I'm the only one that does that? But the problem is when 
we get it backwards. Yeah. We think horizontal comes first. Yeah. And that's going to enable the, the, the vertical. Shift in price. Yeah. All right, so I'm trying to find in my notes. I wanted to skip over to the last few minutes. I want to talk a little bit about the flesh. Before we do that, Okay, so we won't get there. <laughs> Next time. Next time. <laughs> yeah. The expression, God helps those who help themselves, I mean, that could come from Aesop. And he's really talking about Hercules when he was lying down in his, and the saying to him was, the gods help those who help themselves. Oh, wow. Ben Franklin popularized it in Richard's Almanac, where he actually, Are you sure poor poor Richard Zalmanak is not scripture? But so many people think that, you know, the expression has to be from the Bible. Yeah. There's something I wrote a book about all those phrases that people are thinking are in the Bible or not. We'll we'll pay for it. Okay. So if we get a chance to talk a little bit about this idea of the flesh, um, I want to see if I, I, I'm I'm desperately trying to find my notes. I made a note that was in page 24 out of 37 for this particular set of passages. Just saying, I don't know, for some strange reason we tend to go, I tend to go way deeper than what I actually give to you guys. So so this idea of understanding what the flesh is, is important to understand because um, the flesh for Paul is humanity and its fallen frailty. It's unable to help itself. It needs God's redemption because it is God's creation. However, it's not, however, and, and the creation of God in and of itself was not sinful. The original creation was not sinful. The original flesh was not sinful. We are the ones that created sin in ourselves. We disobeyed God. We broke can you imagine you have one law? Here's one thing you have to don't eat of that tree. That's all you gotta do. You got the entire rest of the, the garden, the whole can you imagine the whole garden? You have the whole garden, but you go, you know, you ever been you ever seen little kids? Don't touch that hot stove. <laughs> well, I, I find it really interesting that, that Paul in you know the readings of scripture this point in the discussion here, in my reading this morning in, in First Timothy, Paul blames it on women. <laughs> Keith, Keith is Keith is after it like a uh, like a bird with a June bug. At Panera. <laughs> First Timothy. Four. Adam knew what he was doing as well. He consciously made a decision whether it was, you know, Eve and Eve at first. Who it was, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the question. The question is. Again, one of those passages that we find 
that we find in Hezekiah or the two-eyed kings. Happy wife, happy life. It's one of those... Yes. But yeah, and the, the the whole issue of the seed of the woman is kind of fascinating. Think about that, because that's not how we explain things. The seed of the woman is what? Is who? Christ. Christ. Is there seed involved? Christ. At best, the Holy Spirit came upon her. She had a baby. She is, from my perspective, Protestants don't give Mary enough credit, enough honor. Sometimes I think some other groups perhaps give her too much honor. But I love the phrase that the old, that the uh, uh, the Greek Orthodox use. They, they call her the Theodokos, which means the God bearer. What a great term for who she is. Think about it. Of all the women that have ever lived, she was the one that was chosen. There was something special about Mary. We tend to negate her importance, but think about this. It was her that was the one that was chosen. And this is the season that we think about the fact that she gave birth to a virgin. To, to, she was a virgin and she gave birth. Yeah. Think of the, the, the things that she had to go through as a result of her carrying the Son of God, carrying Emmanuel, God with us, in her bosom, in her womb. Really? Seriously? Wow. And you know what? I venture to say that the majority of us would have been right there criticizing her as well. <coughs> well, of course. And yet Isaiah 7 said that there would be, it would be a virgin. Yeah. Yeah. No. We totally missed that. The Orthodox, when you know Orthodox Jews, you know, just from business or whatever, they're so, they hate, not hate, they don't like the rest of the Old Testament outside of the Torah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because the first five books gives us the way of life. The rest of it is kind of explanation. You know, again, God says, obey this, and you here are the blessings. Disobey this, here are the curses. And by the way, all of the prophets are what? Referring to all the things, the times that, that Israel failed. And so here are the curses if you don't get right. Yeah, which all proves that together. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's have a word of prayer, and we will close. Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have.